You've heard the passage read very clearly uh, and very ably by David, so I'm not going to read it again. You've got it in front of you. I just want to uh, reflect with you a little bit on this story. And it's a story that you and I have heard, and I will never tire of preaching on the parable of the prodigal son. And I trust you will never tire of needing to hear the parable of the prodigal son. Arguably, it's the jewel in the crown of Jesus' parables and of his teaching. Arguably, it is the high point because it is a story in which Jesus reveals and lays bare the outrageous, radical, reckless, as we sang earlier on, grace and love of Almighty God towards people that don't deserve it. And you and I have, I'm sure at different times, uh, fed on that story and seen ourselves in the story. And I can only speak for myself, but I just oscillate between the two sons. Uh, you know, there are times when I see myself fairly and squarely as the, the prodigal who's blown it again, who's wandered off and done his own thing, and he needs to come back to the father with his tail between his legs, recognizing that yet again I mucked up and let him down, fallen short of the promises I made and the words I spoke. And then there have been those other times where I found myself keeping company with the older brother, uh, feeling all self-righteous and all full of self-pity, thinking how hard I've been working for God and how little he's done for me uh, to acknowledge uh, my valiant efforts for him. And we might not be as explicit as that, but there are glimmers and shadows, I suspect, in all of our hearts of seasons where we feel that God owes us one along with the older brother, as well as seasons where we don't even believe or imagine that there's a way back, that it's even possible for us that 70 times 7 might apply to what we are expected to forgive other people, uh, the number of times we're expected to forgive other people, but it wouldn't possibly apply to us. And so we have this story. But of course the boys are uh, pendulum weights, if you like, on either side of the anchor or the core weight who is the father. Because at the core of this story, is an outrage, is an outrageous depiction of God in the person of a father. And we can uh, unpack the story a little bit, it's a parable, it's not based in actual uh, reality, it's a story Jesus told to make a point. And yet we have this picture of a man who is clearly a wealthy patriarch, a landowner, a man who has hired hands and servants and people to do his bidding. And therefore, these two sons are heirs to a significant fortune and a significant piece of earthly security. And so we have here in Hebrew society a man who was to be regarded with the utmost dignity and respect. A man who was the head of his household and all that was under him. His wife, his family, all his servants and so on. And so this is a man of uh, standing in the community. We might uh, you know, compare him to a, a kind of 
kind of landowner in feudal times, or, or um, you know, a clan chief or something like that. Somebody who is of significance and standing. And in a society like that, the lines of respect and reverence, if you like, were clear and non-negotiable. The father said how it was to be, and everybody else got into line behind that. And so we begin this story, as you know, because you've heard it preached, as Ian said, countless times. But it begins with an outrageous, insulting, uh, and offensive statement by this younger son, who asks prematurely for his inheritance while his father is still living. And it seems that the father, without a murmur, gave him the money or the equivalent of his share of the estate. And to be able to do that, to be able to liquidate the estate and be able to give him the financial equivalent of half of the estate without actually, as far as we know, selling any of it off, means that he was a man of considerable means. It means the older brother would get more by way of land and the younger brother presumably got all of his in readies, in cash. And so the younger son disappears off to a distant country and we know the story. A younger son who left, presumably in youthful zeal, presumably blinded by the comfort and the luxury and the standing and the status that he thought were just a given for everybody because he hardly set foot outside of that world. And so in a spirit of pride and independence, out of a lack of appreciation for what he had taken for granted for years, indeed just like any typical uh, teenager or adolescent who imagines that their parents know nothing and there's a world out there and uh, you just got to go and explore it and find it. He takes what he thinks is coming to him, effectively wishing his father dead in order to go and live the high life. And we know what happened. He had friends, no doubt. Uh, he had temporary friends. Uh, and so he was in need when famine struck and ends up feeding pigs. And we know that pigs were unclean animals and therefore in Jewish ears to be feeding pigs was the lowest of the low. And so he was a broken man as he returned. He came to that place in his life as perhaps you and I have come to at different points in our lives where we have realised, realised just how far we've gone, how low we've sunk and how bad things have gone. And realised when he was knee deep in pig's will and doing a job that he could not imagine allowing his father to see him do that we're told that he came to his senses. He came to his senses. I love that phrase. He came to his senses. The work of the Holy Spirit in bringing us to our senses, in opening our eyes to the ways and the places 
in which we have sunk below even our lowest standard for ourselves. And so this young man sank into a place of judgment upon himself. He sank into a place where he considered himself irredeemable as a son. And that the only way in which he could be redeemed was going to be by coming back with his tail between his legs in order to become a hired hand. In his eyes, he had completely lost any hope or standing for himself of being a member of the family. But he held on to the glimmer of a possibility that he might just, he might just find a place in the household. And so we have one young man who is living in judgment upon himself and as a result unable to accept his place or identity or standing as a son anymore. And so he rehearses his little speech to say to his father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Because when we sin, we generally sin against both God and against people. Sometimes we sin against ourselves, against our own bodies. Sometimes we sin against uh, uh, who we are. But here is his description that he knew he'd sinned against heaven. And he sinned against his father. And so he rehearses his speech with an expectation that his identity from now on will be as an employee, a slave in the household, as it were. We're not told too much about the father. We have to read between the lines. There's no sense of his father Reacting when he asked for his inheritance, the father simply gave it to him. And here's another phrase that I've chewed over uh, long and hard. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. How far away do you feel? Because sometimes we feel very far away. Sometimes we feel very far away and so much of a long way off that we imagine that God cannot even know or see that we are there. Now let's bear in mind that these are sons of the household. This is a story which Jesus told to illustrate God's attitude towards the insiders of his household the family members. While it was still a long way off, this boy who had been on the inside, who had had all the benefits and blessings and privileges, this boy who had an identity as a son, this boy who wanted for nothing and had made some very foolish choices and decisions, this boy who was so far away was an insider to the family. And then we have this older brother, and we'll come back to the father. We have an older brother, an insider to the family as well, working hard, 
and yet missing the point. The older brother who hadn't dared to move away, although perhaps in not moving away he had nursed some resentment against his father for some time. I have a twin brother and uh, when we were studying at university we both started off first year staying at home because we both foolishly made the decision to go to Edinburgh University. Not that there's anything wrong with Edinburgh University but we're from Edinburgh and when you don't move away to go to university it's actually a little bit harder to find your way in. Uh, with other students and so on because you're just getting the bus home at the end of the day. You're not going to halls or a student house or you're not hanging out in the places. You're not finding your feet in a foreign city in solidarity with all these other people who don't know which way's up. You know the place. And so it's not just quite the same. Yes, eventually we find friends and so on. But after first year, I thought, I've had enough of this. <laughs> I'm moving into a student flat. I'm moving into a student flat and uh, I'm gonna you know, live with my friends and my mother was not at all happy about this, I can tell you. She was not at all pleased. She was quite, there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of silence as I got my stuff together and moved out. Uh, and there was an awful lot of, uh, clearly, a deep sense of rejection. Why do you need to spend money living in a flat in Edinburgh when you've got a perfectly good home here, etc., etc., etc. But I stuck to my guns and moved into my student flat with my three friends uh, on the other side of town. And I remember that the, uh, the, the, the relationship was bridged somewhat when I phoned her from a call box in London Road in Edinburgh and said, Mum, how do you cook mints? <laughs> and she was absolutely delighted to tell me how to cook mints. Uh, and so that was the beginning of her rapprochement. My brother, however, didn't move out. He did dentistry and for five years stayed at home. And so if you like, he was the older brother. Well, he is the older brother by one hour and five minutes. Uh, and he stayed at home. And there was always that sense for him that he had never had the opportunity to meet the break in the way that I had. And yet I know for me, there was very much the sense that I lived the prodigal life. My university years were prodigal years. I'd become a Christian at Scripture Union when I was 14 or 15 in school, but when you're 14 or 15, giving your life to Jesus doesn't really mean very much, because when you're 14 or 15, you don't really have much of a life to give to Jesus. When you're at school, you pretty much do what you're told, and when you're at home, you pretty much do what you're told. So, you know, there's not much in between time. And so by the time I got uh, to university, my faith was not very deeply embedded. Uh, and so, when I moved out in my second year, then I did the prodigal thing. I spent the rest of my university years living the prodigal life. And my brother stayed at home, and uh, he was a good boy. And uh, certainly in mum's eyes, he was the good boy, because he stayed at home, and he did what you're supposed to do. And so I understand what it is to be the older brother and the prodigal. And I understand how for both of these guys, their hearts were filled and fueled by a wrong attitude. The younger brother, I've already said, surrendered his identity and status as a son and gave himself over instead to judgment against himself. 
I am no longer worthy to be your son. Make me like one of your hired men. The older brother, by contrast, surrendered to judgment against his younger brother. He surrendered to judgment against the other, against the brother who had squandered all this wealth with prostitutes and had come home with his tail between his legs and instead of getting the thrashing he deserved and being sent back out to make his own way in the world, the father kills the fattened calf for him and throws a party to celebrate. What an outrageous way to behave for the good son, the one who was not relying on the grace or generosity of the father, but on his own hard work and slavery, on his own work and goodness, on the things that he had been doing. He was a self-made man, yes, maybe in his father's household, but in his self-understanding, he knew that he had done it all by himself. And both of them had it wrong because of the judgment. Both of them had it wrong because of the judgment. One person crushed by judgment against themselves and a wrong belief that there remained any possible future or restoration or identity as a son. And some of you live in that place. Some of you live in the place of judgment on yourself because of what you've done, because of a past that you think cannot be forgiven, or because of repeat failure since then that you think, well, it's just having a laugh to ask God to forgive you now on the back of all that's gone before. And so you've settled for the place of singing the songs and yet inside knowing that it doesn't apply to you even though it does apply to all these other lovely people around about. And then there are some of us that are consumed by self-righteousness and consumed by looking at other people and holding them in some kind of judgment or criticism because they're not good enough. They've done something wrong and therefore I've got something over them and they cannot be forgiven. I know this or that or the next thing about them. I'm alarmed sometimes just at how easily I find in my own heart the capacity to judge and criticise. It's shocking. And I catch myself. And in between these two sons is a father. A father whose only desire is to have his two sons in with him, in his home. A father who weathered the outrageous rejection of his younger son. And a father who was clearly still looking out for his boy and saw him when he was a long way off. And was filled, we're told, with compassion for him and threw his arms around him and kissed him. Those are not the actions 
of a father who has decided that my son may no longer be a son. If you hold yourself in judgment, just know that it's you that's doing that and it's not the father who sees you that way. Just know that the father extends outrageous grace and mercy to repeat offenders. That when Peter came and asked Jesus, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? And offered the generous up to seven. Jesus blew his number out the water with a multiple that made counting irrelevant. Now, Paul says, shall we go on sinning so that grace might increase? By no means. The counterbalance to the grace of God is that we seek to repent and live out that repentance, to put the past behind us and to cut ties with the things that keep leading us back to the pigsty. And that's an ongoing process. And we're all battling in that process. But you see, the older brother, as hardworking and righteous as he was, was not in the right place either. Because it's not what we do for God or build for God. It's not being God's God, holy people on our own terms that is impressive to God either. The father came and pleaded with the older brother to come and join the party, but he refused. This father, who had uh, given orders to throw the most lavish and excessive party for his returned son, and wanted the older boy to be in the family as well. And yet, because of his own decision to judge, to hold and keep in the place of judgment the offender, the older brother excluded himself from the generous, outrageous grace of the Father. And so I don't know which one you are right now, and maybe tomorrow you'll be different. Whether you're the one who is in some place of judgment against yourself. Or whether you're the one that's locked in some place of judgment against the other. Because the way in to the grace of God is simply by accepting an invitation to join the party. Which is his gift of grace. This is the third of a series of three parables which each have in common with the other the climax of rejoicing over one sinner who repents. Repentance, recognizing what you've done wrong, asking God's forgiveness for it, and turning towards him is the qualification to come to the party. Jesus 
died in order to open the door. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And Jesus said, I am the gate for the sheep. And when you come in through Jesus, when you put your faith in what he has done, then on the inside of that way, of that gate, of that door, there is a place of unquestioning, uncritical, non-judging, loving acceptance. The air of heaven and of the presence of God is love itself. It's not dependent on what you are like. It's because God is love. And you come into the presence of God, you come into the presence of love through Jesus, who died in order to suspend all judgment, the judgment you have against yourself, and to challenge you to lay down your judgments against other people. Of course, there's another sense Jesus told this parable really not just about individuals, although we always tend to take it as a story about individuals. It's actually a picture of the nation. It's a picture of the nation of Israel. A nation that was divided by those who had lost touch with God and gone after the pagan practices of other nations and lost touch with their uh, identity as sons and daughters of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are the prodigals. The ones that the Son of Man came to seek and to save. The ones who'd lost hope and lost heart and lost faith. The people that came in their droves to hear Jesus, and many of them repented and began to put their faith in him. And of course, there was the older brother, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the ones who were diligently working for God all of these years and feeling hard done by, and feeling self-important and self-righteous. It's a picture of the nation. And at the center of that picture of the nation of God's people is a father longing to have his children back. Longing to have the lost sheep of Israel come and find the God who called them and made them and wants them back. And hoping that he might persuade at least some, and Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea are two of the ones we know that did, who had a change of heart from their Pharisaic ways of self-righteousness and self-justification to accept that it's not what they did, but it's by the Father's acceptance of them, through Jesus, that they might come in. I see a little glimmer in our own nation. <laughs> I see a little glimmer in our own nation of those two halves. In some respects, we're a prodigal nation in Scotland or in the United Kingdom. A nation that used to know 
that derived its education and its social services, that derived much of its justice system and its sense of values and fairness and fair play and, and all sorts of things. A nation in which, as people will tell you, you used to be able to go out and not lock your door or lock your car where it was safe and so on. All of these values were derived from our Christian heritage. They are, if you like, the family, uh, the family values. And yet, increasingly over the years, as a nation, many people have cashed those in. We live in a society that still wants to take for granted those things. And yet we're a nation increasingly that has turned its back on the Father and is lost instead in empty pleasures. And so we've become and are becoming a nation lacking leadership and full of political confusion. We're a nation in which knife and gun crime rise, in which pornography is through the roof, in which mental health problems and identity confusion abound, a health service is stretched to breaking point. We're a nation that is making its way towards the pigsty, even though it's had this inheritance. And then on the other hand, there's a self-righteous nation. The angry rejectors of God that see science as all the answers and we can fix this and we're masters of our own future. A society that is rife with judgment and divisions because we know the best way. And all while xenophobia, hostility, tension and division are growing all around us because that's what happens when judgment is let loose. And all the while there's a patient father. There's a patient father longing for a people who may get so sick of the empty way of living that we come to know and expect that nowadays to ask the question, is there more to life than this? And for the ones who are confident that they have all the answers and we can fix this by ourselves to discover that actually we all need a father. I need to stop talking. We're going to share communion. And communion is simply an invitation to the grace of the Father. Through the blood of Jesus, his death upon the cross, the door. And at the door, Jesus simply asks that you drop the judgment against yourself. Yes, you got it wrong. You're not perfect, you never were. But Jesus extends his grace and his forgiveness to you. So forgive yourself, please, because he's already forgiven you. And if you would come in through Jesus, then drop your judgments against other people. Wherever, whatever, you hold in your heart, where you're nursing a pointing finger, where you're cherishing resentment, where you're holding evidence against the other, drop it or stay inside the door. Because you cannot come in to a place where Jesus has died to take away judgment. Where the only judgment is the judgment of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But it's not a judgment of condemnation for those who are his. It's a different kind of judgment altogether. And he invites you instead to come into the place of grace, to come into the place of party and celebration, to come into the place where there is huge rejoicing in heaven over one 
sinner who repents. And so we're going to celebrate together. And we're going to celebrate and remember that as we come to his table, Jesus' invitation says to us, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. 